I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Davide Ferreiro Mutselli. Davide, welcome to the podcast. Yes, hi, nice to meet you. Perfect. Now, you're an atmospheric scientist, right? Yes, that's correct. So, Davide, what kind of atmospheric scientist are you? So I'm the kind of atmospheric scientist that goes out to the field to measure air quality pollutants. And I'm trying to find out how these pollutants affect our daily, daily lives and how they interact with another sort of air pollution, which is odors. You're an aromatic atmospheric scientist. <laughs> yes, pretty much. <laughs> and are these uh, scents and odors that um, you and I would be able to pick up with our, I guess, the naked nose or... Are they sense that you'd need uh, specialized technology to detect? Yeah, that's a great question. So when it comes to the literature, uh, we have an agreement, we as I say scientists have an agreement that the best instrument to actually detect smells is the nose, the human nose. Of course, uh, if you go to dogs and other animals, they have a strong sense of uh, smell than us. But in terms of smelling and being able to communicate what kind of smell that is, uh, our nose is pretty good and better than many of other instruments that we try to uh, invent or create right, to, to detect those smells. But we are still limited in some ways. For instance, I can smell gasoline Right, you can can smell mm -hmm. other smell like flower smells, but I cannot say what chemical is in the air that is causing that particular smell. For that, we need specific instruments to do that composition analysis. And is that what you do? Yes, that's part of the things that I do. Uh, we have a mobile laboratory right now at UBC, which is called the Plume Van. Uh, that's the portable laboratory for understanding human-made emissions. That's the Plume. Um, yeah, short for plume. And inside the plume uh, laboratory, we have a bunch of air quality instruments. And one of them is a gas chromatography with a flame ionization detector. All this to say that this particular instrument is capable of detecting volatile organic compounds or VOCs. And we can, uh, once we detect those VOCs, relate the smell that we are uh, experiencing on the road to what the instrument was measuring in a posterior analysis. We often hear about VOCs in terms of new furniture um, off-gassing its sense, but we don't hear about it in a, in a more uh, wider environmental context. Yeah, that's one thing. Um, VOCs, they are, one, hard to quantify, and it's a name that kind of groups a lot of compounds into one single uh, name right? Mm -hmm. So the VOCs, they can be emitted even like from body spray, like perfume, fragrances like that, um, from also uh, landfill operations and other types of atmospheric processes. And mainly, uh, they are emitted by plants. So mm -hmm. all plants around us emit what we call biogenic volatile organic compounds or BVOX. And they are actually responsible for a lot of the VOCs that we have 
uh, in the atmosphere. Next to it, we have um, VOCs coming from household furnitures, um, also like some chemicals that we use in our homes, and of course from traffic from vehicles. And so are they necessarily bad or are they a type of pollution? They have two ways, two main ways, I would say, to impact a person. Um, The first one is mainly through the concentration itself. And this concentration, of course, depending on the amount or how much, it can uh, affect the human body in different ways. Or it's a concentration that is uh, enough to create a smell, and the person would, of course, detect that smell and be annoyed by it if it is a bad smell. Now, if you smell something bad one day, it's one thing. If you smell something bad all days in your life because you live close to some pollution source, that's another completely different thing, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a way that VOCs can actually impact you in your life. The other way is when they transform in the atmosphere because of different reactions with ozone, for instance, and they create a secondary pollutant, which is... Uh, ultrafine particles. Now, ultrafine particles, they are very, very small particles that can actually go inside your lungs and act- and pass the blood barrier that you have and affect you in all sorts of ways. Oh, wow. All that from scent. <laughs> all that from, from scent and yeah, many of the reactions that occur in the atmosphere. This past summer, I noticed that my local grocery store was um, also selling bags of manure-based soil outside their front doors, and it certainly impacted my urge to impulse shop. Okay, um, I would invite you in that if that happens again, or if you s- smell something in Metro Vancouver, to go to smell-vancouver.ca. That's an app or a web-based application that we have. And when I say we, it's uh, myself and a group of UBC researchers that started this project to understand, I would say, this smellscape or the map of smells in Vancouver. So from December of 2020, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we've been collecting uh, reports on smells or odors that people are perceiving in Metro Vancouver. And we are using this data to correlate smells to health impacts because so far smells have been associated a lot with annoyance but not as much as health uh, um, and implications to health and we are also using this data when I go with the plume van that I just described to uh, measure the air quality in locations where people are reporting such problems. And I mean certainly it's um, quite obvious that they do impact your health. Um, We've all uh, noticed nose blindness where you smell the same smell over and over again and you just stop noticing it. Yes, that's um, that's one of the issues. I would not say, but, well, it's a kind of an issue in terms of um, working with others, right? Uh, there is so much things to, to consider. Mm-hmm. One thing is, like you said, the, the, the nose blindness, right? The other one is how the person understands the smell, I would say, because let's say gasoline. Right, I love the smell of gasoline, but I know people that just hate it. Now, in a situation where you're close to a, where I am close to a gasoline source, like a gas station, and I'm there for a few minutes, I'm fine with that. Even though I know that what is in the air that is harmful to me, in terms of the smell of it, I'm completely fine. But another person be sup- might be super worried about this, right? So there is like a quantitative and a qualitative 
information that you need to work with. It's funny. I'll, um, when I go on the road and I take out specimens to show off to the public, uh, one of my favorite specimens is to bring out some sulfur. And of course, sulfur uh, is famous for being very smelly. But on the same day, I'll have two people give me opposite responses to the sulfur. Uh, one person will say, oh, this reeks. And the other person will say, I can't smell it at all. I thought sulfur was supposed to have a scent. And so I swear there must be a gene that uh, some people have and others don't. Yeah, that's interesting because like, in terms of the chemicals that we can find in the atmosphere, uh, sulfur compounds, they have the lowest odor threshold uh, out there. Mm. Like one of the, the lowest at least. Just, just so we can explain and everybody understand, like odor threshold essentially is how much you need to dilute a chemical uh, in air so the people like 50% of a panel stops detecting it essentially so for let's say hydrogen sulfide if i'm not mistaken it's 0.5 ppb or parts per billion parts per billion is the equivalent of a drop of water in an olympic pool so half of a drop of water in an olympic pool is enough for people to smell hydrogen sulfide in the air wow that's at least 50 percent of people i guess the the other person in your experiment <laughs> belongs to the other 50 that could not smell <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool now you mentioned that you're uh, studying this right now mm-hmm. um in this podcast we try to meet people at various stages in their careers uh at what stage are you at um right now i'm second year phd student um really hoping to get my candidacy by March of next year. And we'll see what the future uh, holds for me. But um, I, I would say in terms of progress so far it has been great. I was able to publish a literature review in more or less my first year. And um, I'll be able to do the first field work of my PhD and next year on 2023 on summer in the summer. I hope to do another field work more complete than compared to the one that I did just now. So you, you're brand new. You still got that new PhD candidate smell. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I am not uh, as desperate yet. <laughs> Give it time. Give it time. Yeah. For now, is excitement. <laughs> now you're doing your PhD in uh, atmospheric sciences. Uh, have you been doing atmospheric sciences throughout your academic career? Yes. So I come from environmental engineering background. Uh, I'm actually an international student from Brazil. And ever since, I think, my halfway, my uh, undergrad, I started to approach more this air quality, air pollution, urban air quality kind of research field. And started small with like a scientific initiation program, which is similar to a co-op or a work learner um, thing that you have here at UBC. And eventually I met like my former supervisors and the thing just escalated as a, as a passion of mine. And why did you end up at UBC? It's a funny story. There are some points to be um, put it out there. The, the first one is that when I was still in undergrad, almost at the end, I did an exchange program to New Zealand. So I studied for one and a half year in the University of Auckland. And that was like opening my eyes to what education could be. Unfortunately, in Brazil, um, there is a situation where um, education is not as accessible to everyone, and the universities they are not, they don't have as much resources as universities in other parts of the world. So, at the uni- at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, I experienced what it was to study in a top 
100 or top something uh, university, like ranked in the world rank of universities. Yeah, anyways. So that, that kind of experience opened my eyes. And when I came back to Brazil, I just knew it. I would have to go back or just go away and study in a, in a, in a place where I knew I could thrive, right? Now, fast forward to my master's degree, I, I was researching the opportunity to do this because I knew that with the master's, I would be able to compete with other students around the world. And my supervisor's lab here at UBC just stand out at this research that I did. Uh, the profile of the lab said that she was conducting um, measurements in the real world applications and how that can translate to policy making uh, and that sort of thing, and, and that, that captured my attention because so far I had a huge experience in modeling, so atmospheric dispersion, that sort of things, and I knew I needed to become better uh, atmospheric scientist. I would need to understand more about measurements and real-time measurements, so it kind of fit, right? Uh, so I sent her an email, and there was no response. <laughs> So I waited a few more months, and then I said another email with a different uh, resume, a different like structure and everything, and I was lucky that she uh, answered me back. And ever since then, it's just a history, like they say. <laughs> Excellent. And do you find that your um, engineering background is useful in the work that you're doing right now? Yes, definitely it is, because from the engineering background, you kind of understand more the processes behind the emissions especially because uh, air quality and air pollution was a, a huge thing in my environmental engineering major and, of course, my, my master's degree as well. Uh, in the, camp, the campus that I studied back in Brazil, it was uh, pretty strong. And it's actually one of the reference uh, research labs in Brazil for that particular field of study. So I got a lot of background um, there, also working with the government in terms of the policies, and uh, policymakers, and of course, I also worked a little with uh, some environmental consultants, and I also work with the industry um, as well. So I kind of, I kind of had an experience there that grasped all the the possible places that I could either work or be called to uh, make a service. I guess when I started my PhD. So all this together put a lot of experience to me and I was so grateful for that. <laughs> Excellent. It's always good to have that uh, diverse experience under your belt. Diverse experience, that's it, yeah. You never know when it's going to be called upon to be needed or used. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Is the air quality in Brazilian cities uh, particularly good or bad? I mean, I always imagine Brazil to have very good air quality, but... So Brazil is... Of course, like, it's a huge country, right? It's the size of a, size of a continent, basically. Uh, there will be some places where the air quality is pretty good, I would say. Um, but on major cities and the city that I was from, mm -mm, it was pretty bad. Like in, in my particular city, uh, there was two huge issues. The first one is what we call settable particles or deposit particles. Essentially, those are... Uh, particular matter in the air that settle inside the people's like houses, mm -hmm. and like every day, people like the, the the government of like the 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 state would receive thousands 
not every day, but I mean, along the year, it would receive thousands of complaints about this dust that was accumulated in people's houses. Yeah, that was that's what well, was one of the issues, and the other one was uh, smells, odors, and I was fortunate to work with both things as I was in my undergrad and master's degree there. I certainly live in the the West End, uh, downtown Vancouver, and I've noticed that uh, living there. I get that fine particulate in my home all the time. I have to sweep the floor at least once a week. Otherwise, it starts to feel uh, gritty because it's all that particulate. Is that just from vehicles and traffic? Um, vehicles and traffic can play a role on it by in two ways. One is the emissions itself from the um, from like burning fuel and, and, and the escaping. The other one is when they are uh, running on the asphalt, mm. right? They can resuspend, resuspend particles in the air, particles that were once in the asphalt goes through the air. So on the road, that goes through the air. And also the tire, uh, when, whenever there is like brakes, mm-hmm. a, a little bit of dust comes out of the, of the tires and goes through the air as well. So yeah, vehicles can play a role on that for sure. Now, there are also two sources that I think is worth mentioning. One, it's uh, even atmospheric circulation itself. So say you have a, f- um, a, wildf- a wildfire somewhere and the wind is transporting all that dust into Vancouver that can also settle into your, into your home very easily. But in situations where you don't have wildfires happening but you still are having dust in your home, uh, there could possibly be another source there. I, I don't know all the sources in Vancouver yet. I will. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's probably another source that is emitting a lot of uh, particles. Even um, ships, you know, um, on the harbor can emit a lot of particles as well. And that can go to your house. And so that's only one half of the uh, the problem that you're studying. <clears throat> uh, the other half is more uh, scent-based uh, aromas. Mm-hmm. Where do the majority of those come from? Now, the majority of those, I would like... In a city, it would come from wastewater treatment. That's a big issue. And that's basically anywhere you go, you're going to have a waste. Like in a city, you're going to have a big city. You're going to have wastewater treatment. And there are specific times of the year, if it's too hot or the different types of treatment that you apply to the wastewater, it can create a really bad smell. The other one is landfills. Uh, landfills, sometimes they are not easy to control, the smells that come out of it. Uh, depends a lot on the type of treatment as well. And again, that's where my environmental engineering major comes from in terms of understanding the process in the wastewater treatment and on the landfills. And we have some uh, sources that it can cause pleasant smells. For instance, restaurants, bakery, that type of food smell that we kind of appreciate and we have emergent sources so sources that up to some point they were not an issue but they might become an issue now one example is uh, cannabis cultivation which is became legal for both medical and recreational purposes in Canada in 2018 and once this happened we had an increase uh, not only in the size but also on the number of uh, legal cannabis cultivators and that also was follow-up with an increase in reports of smells associated with, with that source. I remember one year I was walking home on April 20th uh, at 4.20 over the Burrard Street Bridge, and of course the uh, 4.20 celebrations were going on directly beneath me. And even though I was many stories up in the sky above them... You could smell it? 
I could smell it. It hit me like a, a brick wall and um, it made me a, a little nauseous, I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that's that's a, that's the thing with smells, right? You, you, it doesn't matter if you like or uh, don't like the smell. Eventually, if you, if you have a long time exposure, it's gonna have some. It's gonna have some effect, some kind of effect in your body, right? Um, for most people, the at least what we are finding so far by analyzing the data from SmellVancouver.ca uh, is that um, the effect, the health effect that we are getting the most is either nausea or something like uh, something of the kind, and also uh, respiratory in the sense that people feel lack of air. They don't want to grasp the air because the air is contaminated so they try to hold it mm-hmm. and then they lack of air yes yeah, eventually and that leads to further complications like headaches are also commonly reported sort of that sort of thing yep i've had both of those um oh, wow. <laughs> anytime i've tried to smoke uh it just doesn't go in because um i can't convince my body to inhale <laughs> sorry about that it's just yeah it's made for some very funny uh mishaps mm-hmm. Now, in your academic career, um, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share, either uh, something that was new to the world of science or something that was new for you, a personal discovery? That's a very good question, and, and yes, I think there is. Um, it was interesting because during my first year here as, as a PhD student, I was pretty much dedicated to make the literature review that we end up publishing this year. And this literature review really opened my eyes. The literature review was about uh, cannabis cultivation, emissions, and the impact on the community and occupational scale. It was published on Environmental Science and Technology, which is a great journal in my, in my area. Um, one of the things that we found out about that, uh, like during this, this review process, is that we know so little about this particular industry. And that's the thing, like, when... Um, when you don't know about the industry so much, you have to investigate, right? You have to know before the industry practice become entrenched, become like fixed, and you, and you can no longer uh, modify without some problems. Uh, that's when you need to investigate to know what kind of pollution you are creating, not only for the atmospheric emissions, but also in the water, in the soil, right? And yeah, I, it wasn't, it kind of amazed me how little do we know about this industry that it's growing. For instance, did you know that if you compare the smells, the intensity of the smell of one cannabis plant, that will be equivalent to the intensity of smell of growing a chicken in a in a farm, right? It's more like one to one ratio in in terms of the smell intensity. Uh, it's also similar to one kilogram of waste as well. So all that sort of things we, we kind of mapped on our uh, literature review. And when you say um, the smell of a chicken, do you mean the smell of the chicken's waste or just the chicken's B.O.? The, the smell of growing chicken. So if you, if you pass through a, what, what do you call a poultry farm, yeah, you can smell that, uh, that those chickens or whatever is in there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if, if you divide that intensity, I would say by the number of chickens and you get the smell per one chicken, that would be equivalent more or less to the smell of one cannabis plant. Do we have a lot of cannabis cultivation within the city of Vancouver limits? I know we have a lot of distribution, but... If I remember correctly, we have around 40 uh, cannabis cultivation facilities in Metro Vancouver. So 
yeah, on Metro Van. In Vancouver specifically, I, I can't remember the, the number now, um, but there is a lot of transition as well in the industry between what was once uh, illegal and now becoming legal, uh, that sort of thing, yeah. But I totally agree with you. It's um, essential that we set the best practices we can uh, while the industry is still young and learning. Uh, it's like teaching your child uh, positive uh, habits and behaviors, uh, and it's so much easier to do that when they're young rather than trying to correct bad behaviors when they're older and mature. That was a great analysis, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned that one of the changes um, in switching from engineering into science has been uh, doing field work. Uh, do you do a lot of field work? So, um, so far I only had done this summer field work um, during the months of July to, to August, and I hope to do more, of course, uh, in the future. Before that, I did some field work in my environmental engineering because my professors were very keen to either um, endorse or promote this kind of projects and also in my internship. So I have some, I have some experience in that as well, but I'm, I'm gaining much more experience here uh, at UBC. And again, I think this is sort of related to the type of program that is the atmospheric scientists and all earth, ocean and atmospheric science program like in general have this particular um, Either they are very focused on modeling or very focused on, on field work, right? And the yeah, I would say that that's that's pretty much one of like the the, the main reason. The other one is UBC has a lot of uh, resources, and that facilitates uh, uh, when a researcher wanna, wants to do a, a field work, right? Excellent. Um, Field stories have been one of my favorite parts of these interviews. Uh, oh, cool. <laughs> it seems the field is a place where crazy things can happen, things that, that I'm sure are very frustrating to you, but honestly very entertaining for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you care to share any? Sure, sure. So um, there are a few like routine stories that, uh, like you said, very frustrating for me, but you know, <laughs> funny for the audience. One of, one of those is like, when we turn on the bloom van and all the instruments inside to go out to the field, we have to follow a very specific uh, routine in terms of which instruments to turn on first, what to plug in first, and that sort of like, what code, like piece of script in Python or R to run first, that sort of thing. Um, so it takes about 20 minutes to do that um, before we can actually go to the field. Now, that's a piece of headache for somebody waking up at 6 a.m. <laughs> to come to UBC and uh, like prepare the f for, for the day, right? Uh, another one is when you're actually going to the field and all of a sudden the van starts making these noises and there is something wrong. So you have to shut off the van. but as you shut off the engine, you also need to shut off all the instruments and redo this whole process like again. So you just pull to the side of the road, wait for another 20 minutes, turn everything on, wait for the right time, and then you go back. That happened during four days, and one of these days happened three times in the same day. It was exhausting. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the part that annoyed me, I guess, and maybe fun to, to, to some people, but now, Maybe I can share a story that is just fun, fun, right? Yeah, go ahead. There was a day uh, we were coming back from Eastland, 
And just like going back to UBC, and we take the West 12, if I'm not mistaken, all the way. And we end up at this uh, intersection. I don't remember the streets now, uh, at the red light. And we saw on the right side that there were a group of climate change deniers making a protest. Specific protests, like they were with uh, flyers, um, like uh, some, some, some things written, and they were saying stuff, but very specific, right? But I think the whole irony of the situation is just uh, f funny to me because here we were, right, with the bloom van parked next to them with all those air quality instruments measuring different types of pollutants inside, uh, outside actually, um, and they were there like next to us saying that climate change wasn't a thing. So I, I talked to my uh, colleague, because there's always two people in the van, uh, the person that was driving that day, I talked to him and say, hey, should we, should we say something? Like, <laughs> should we <laughs> try to like talk to them in a way that we can uh, convince them? I don't know that uh, climate change is a thing, I don't know. And, and say, yeah, we, we should try, we can try, right? We can always try. So I, I opened the window and somebody approached me and I said, hey, do you want to know what's the carbon dioxide levels uh, today? <laughs> and the person was like, oh, yeah, sure. Carbon dioxide can go up and down. It doesn't matter. And I set them the number and I tried to explain a little about the, the science. Uh, the person, of course, didn't hear me, uh, but they gave me this uh, newspaper where they have like all the claims and all the things that they support. So I would say that in the end of the of the day, it was an, a peaceful and healthy exchange of information from both parties. <laughs> and honestly, sometimes that's the best that you can hope for. Um, you can't always convert someone or, or change their thinking. That's that's true. That's something I am kind of hoping to learn more and more in my PhD. I never paid much attention to it until I came to UBC, which is the science communication aspect of research. One thing is for you to do your research and do it well and write many papers, that's good. Now, you also need to be able to communicate that science to a, what we call general, I hate that term, but what they call a general public. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, I wanna learn more about that in a way that I'll be able to, in a situation like this, if it ever happens again, I can actually convince someone, hey, actually, thank you for uh, stopping by and explaining this to me. Now I understand why I was wrong. No, I think um, I think that's the best way that could have turned out. It, it's a really challenging um, interaction, and I think you handled it like a pro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, you are clearly uh, very passionate about your work. Um, what's the best part about your work, or what do you love the most? So for me... Uh, what I love the most, it's the science itself in a way that you can always contribute to something uh, in this world, right? That is, um, there is a piece of information that's, that, that you own. Like it was you that put that information there, right? You, was the, you were the person responsible to either discover it or advance it. Um, that really kind of, I, I kind of get emotional when I think about that. <laughs> it's just, uh, you, you're putting your mark on the world and you're making sure that once you leave it, you're going to leave it uh, better than once you came it right to it. Um, it, it there is the whole, the whole discovery part of things uh, and the hard work that comes behind it is just 
very exciting for me. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, when you're done, um, what do you see your finished uh, thesis looking like? Will it be a, a scent map of Vancouver or? A scent map of Vancouver is going to be there, but I hope to be much more uh, than this. I hope to be able to establish some links between air quality and odors or the smells that we perceive so we can advance in a way that how we treat odors as, as air pollution. Mm-hmm. Do you see um, the scent map or the, the scentscape of Vancouver uh, changing with climate change? Yes, that's uh, definitely something that can happen. The time of the year where people experience most smells, usually it's in the summer. Now, that's because when people tend to go more outside, so they encounter things. Another one is that with in the summer, you have increase in uh, temperature and also solar incidence. So there is a lot of volatile organic compounds being emitted to the air from the sources, either because of the heat or because just um, pretty much it's mostly because of, of the heat, right? There are other things that, that contribute for the summer being the, the one, the, the time of the year where people complain uh, or experience more. And, and if you think about it, um, with climate change, one of the things that we know it might just happen, and is is that we have more extremes, right? Extremes in in weather in terms of rain, and extremes in weather in terms of heat, in terms of, uh, especially during during summer days. So what might happen with climate change is that you're gonna have warmer days, and those warmer days on, on the year now. If you count the number of warmer days in the year, it's gonna increase, and that increase is gonna reflect in terms of the odors that people are gonna experience. And another thing that might happen is you're gonna have uh, more heavier rains and those rains essentially might imply an accumulation of water in some places and accumulation of water, depending on where where water accumulates is also a a trigger, I would say, to some sources of waters as well. Yeah, so it it might change, yeah. So here's to a smelly future. Yeah. If we do our work right, we can prevent that kind of scenario. <laughs> um, you talked about the best part of your work. What's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? I would say the worst or, or the most challenging part of, of the work is when you are having a bad day. Essentially, when you are too distracted with something else, or we are, you're very tired, but you still have to go and you still have to do um, your research. You still have to analyze the data. You have to make progress. Everybody's entitled to some days off. That's, that's okay. Um, but there are some days you just can't run away from. And those, I, I, I would say, are the most uh, challenging ones. You can say some things are very hard to study, very hard to understand, very hard to analyze. Um, and that can cause some frustration, but for me that is very temporarily because one, I know I'm going to get it eventually, and the process of finding out, once the frustration goes away, it becomes excitement again, and I just be very happy about it, so yeah. Excellent. Every uh, cloudy day has a silver lining. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> now I'm curious, um, 
Do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your research in any way? Um, it's easier to answer the second question first, and that's a no. <laughs> uh, in terms of identifying myself um, with some minority, I, that's, that's the thing. Like um, For the listeners of the program, I am a white, tall guy, <laughs> blonde hair, I think green eyes, so that's that's the figure of me, and in that sense, I don't I don't I don't think I would fit in some uh, minority. I I think, but you are an international student. Exactly. That's that's the thing. Like where I'm from in Brazil, I don't see myself a, a, as a minority, right? But when I come here to to Canada, I was exposed to this international. I would say. Um, view of me and also the Latin American view of me. Never face any encounter in terms of people like uh, behaving badly. Ne no, nobody talked me down uh, in that sense and that's, that's great. I, I, I think that that culture of respect and appreciation for people from all parts of this world is, is fantastic, right? So I guess the short answer, that, that's the long answer, and the short answer for both your questions is like no and no. I, I don't identify myself as any minority, and, I, and that was never a problem in terms of my research. Excellent. Uh, was there any kind of culture shock in coming to a Canadian university as opposed to a, Bra a Brazilian one? Uh, there were some in terms of the holidays, which I, of course, didn't know about them, so... Uh, yeah, I had to adjust uh, to it. But um, working hours, pretty much uh, the same. Again, here here you have more programs to support uh, the student. And I guess this, again, comes from the resources that UBC has. Um, there is a lot, of, a lot of talk about embracing community, um, that, that sort of thing. I wanted to add something to my previous answer, if that's possible. Go ahead. Um, you were talking about uh, minorities in my research, right? From And from my perspective, yes, it's, it's still a no. But um, I know that we should include that in terms of the analysis that we do uh, with the data that we receive. Because representation is something important, even in science, right? You cannot do a study with a particular group of people and say that that's the results for all groups of, of people. That's that's an easy thing to understand, right? Mm -hmm. So include uh, minority groups in my analysis is something important for me and for, and for my research. In fact, that is a concept that we call environmental injustice. And that's, that's some, that kind of translates to when you have an environmental problem that is happening in a community that already faces some other social or economic uh, issue, right? So it's what we call a double impact or a triple impact. And that is associated to the environmental injustice uh, that I just uh, just mentioned. So investigating that sort of thing is also important in, in, in my research. Well, especially for something as uh, personal as um, whether something smells good or bad, um, one a person from one cultural or racial background uh, may, may find something smells wonderful, uh, where someone from another cultural background may um, wrinkle their nose and and not enjoy the smell at all, just as um, we do with foods or, or, or music. Um, there's certainly a, a cultural aspect. That is true. That is true. 
there is another aspect that is a little bit more shady, uh, I think, which is related to urban planning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cities, they tend to expand with, with time, right? So in locations where you have sources that previously were not annoying anyone because they were far away, all of a sudden you have the city that is expanding and getting close to that particular source. What we see is that the people living close to those sources usually are in some minority group, right? Mm-hmm. And in terms of urban planning, and as an envir- environmentalist, also as a scientist, also as just a citizen, that kind of thing cannot happen, right? So removing the industry from where it is to someplace else, it's pretty much impossible. It's, it's a wastewater treatment plant, a landfill, or just a regular industry. It's, it's, it's very hard to do something of the kind. But planning the city in a way that it doesn't get to this point is a totally different conversation. And that's something you can actually do because we are talking about five, 10 years uh, process, right? Not something that was established and you need to just take out of there. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do you find that atmospheric science as a whole is um, a really open and welcoming community or is it more closed off and insular or is it a bit of both uh I, I would say it's, it's it's very open in that in that sense i am the one to blame or to be ashamed i would say and that's because um most of the contact that i have been uh it's from people from the mac department not as much from the aos or the atmospheric scientists uh, department but i do participate in the graduate council for um the earth ocean and atmospheric science uh graduate students or, or, or department as a way to try to get more engaged with this side of my, um, I would say, my program, right? And all the, the professors and uh, people that I met inside the atmospheric scientists and all the AOS, they're just amazing, kind-hearted people. Yeah, yeah it's just incredible. We've got a great team here. And good for you for trying or making the extra effort uh, to reach out to... Um, the the weaker side of your portfolio. (laughs) You are two years into your PhD studies and uh, the world is two years into the pandemic. Wow, yeah. (laughs) So um, I guess it's not fair to ask how the pandemic's impacted your work because uh, you haven't experienced uh, your PhD without COVID. That's true. That's, yeah, that's true. (laughs) But do you imagine that your research or your... your, um, your work would have been different if you hadn't been studying under these conditions? It could have been like in good and bad ways. Um, in the good way, I would say, is that coming to UBC sooner, because I, I started in January of 2021, but I was only able to come to Canada on July of 2021. So six months into my PhD program, I, I, I was doing that in Brazil and fighting to get my visa and all that like oh. sort of things. Uh, if I was here on, since January, maybe the transition was going to be uh, easier and, and smoother, and I would be able to uh, work on some of the things that I was only able to work nine months into my program because I wasn't here to physically be doing things, like manual things, right? Now, on the bed, I would say it would be something it might be that I didn't. I was not going to accomplish what I accomplished so far um, 
in terms of uh, research, in terms of scholarships, in terms of awards, those kind of things. Because when I was in Brazil during those six months, I one motivated myself to produce the literature review, which I publish uh, again, like I said, this year. So maybe if I was here already, I'll be wanting to do some like more manual stuff and wouldn't um, try to make a review paper and this. Uh, could have been a lost opportunity. I, I don't know. It's just we are playing ifs here, right? Um, and another one uh, might be that um, when we came to here to to Canada, uh, again was COVID. The, the 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 Canadian dollar was super high compared to Brazilian uh, real. Mm -hmm. So it might have been the situation that if we got here, when I say we, it's me and my wife, um, if we got here in January, we might not be able to have the financial financial resources to actually stay in a comfortable situation, right? Because moving in is very expensive. And um, I was very fortunate that my supervisor gave a lot of support in that particular aspect. And, and although in that, those six months that I stayed in Brazil, I was working in a, in a project and that project gave me enough money to actually make this this transition, right? I can also imagine moving from uh, Brazil to uh, Vancouver in January in the middle of winter. Oh, yes, that is that. Would have been an extra shock. <laughs> uh, it was funny. Um, I think I, I got to, to, um, to Canada in July, but then I, I had to stay like the two weeks of the quarantine, right? And then the actually first day that I... Uh, I came here to UBC to like visit and explore and get to know where I was going to work. It was sometime in August, um, and then I met my supervisor, and we were just outside the AMS having a coffee, uh, and we were in the sun, mm -hmm. and I was feeling cold, <laughs> and it was uh, 20 degrees or something. It's like because. Just just to clarify, in Brazil where I live, it's usually 25 degrees higher or higher all year, right? The, the, the worst winter that we have is 16, 14, and that's if you go to the mountains, right? So, uh, yeah, coming here on the, on the winter in January will have been quite a shock. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, chatting with some Brazilians um, through work, and uh, they were telling me about what they consider to be cold weather, and I thought, that's unbearably hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember one of the professors in the in the project that I'm, that I'm working with, uh, working on, she said that for her, the perfect weather to live is 13 degrees, and I was like, what? <laughs> After a hot spate this summer, I'm, I'm very happy to be that it's cool enough today that I can wear pants and not yes, have to wear shorts that's, again. That's true. It's getting it's getting cool. The the autumn is coming, right? <laughs> no, not the autumn. Sorry, the the fall. Uh, either or. Either or. Yeah. <laughs> now, if anyone's listening right now and wants to be become an um, aromatic atmospheric scientist like you, uh, <laughs> what background or courses or even just life experience would you recommend that they pursue in order to follow in your footsteps? Um, I think the person that is listening, you can take advantage of the UBC co-op and work learner programs and work with someone that uh, either from the chemistry department or even the atmospheric, scientist, uh, atmospheric science department. 
that does measurements with uh, related to to air quality, especially VOCs, because in terms of um, smells and odors, VOCs are a major one pollutant to to blame. So if you can get specialized on on those compounds, it's going to be important to you. Um, but all in all, just just be curious, you know. Just uh, just be curious. Reach out to to um, even myself or experts uh, in the area. Um, we had some students actually in, in the project, like reaching out. Once once I published the the literature review paper about the cannabis emissions, we had a three or four students reaching out to the the, the group project, saying, "Hey, we want to work with you. We want to uh, even like do one day of sampling with you. Can we do that? That sort of thing." Be those students. We love that energy. <laughs> that was one mistake that I made in my undergrad. Uh, careers that I was too nervous to reach out, uh, approach uh, senior students and professors for that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. now that I work at a university, I realize they're all just people and they're all super friendly and um, they just want someone who's enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I, sh I share that same mistake all the way up to, um, I guess, my fourth year. But it's, it's five years for engineering in Brazil. So all the way to my fourth year, I shared the same mistake. But then I you know. Let's let's try something and I, yeah. Uh, and for yourself, what was the course that changed the trajectory of your career? Well, that that would be, um, I think, if you translate this uh, introduction to air quality or introduction to air pollution, actually, is a course that I did uh, back in Brazil um, with my supervisor, Professor Jani. Uh, if if you are hearing this, uh, thank you very much, Jani. Um, but yeah, I mean. She explained air quality in urban areas in such a way that's that's what I knew I was I needed to work with that you know that's that's what I I knew that air quality was something that I I wanted to pursue right so it, it changed uh, my life like in terms of the contents of the course in terms of the things that I learned uh, for me of course was was uh, pretty much new stuff um, but it wasn't hard and just the way that she could explain real life situations, what the books were giving in equations and that sort of thing, that was just fantastic. It's amazing how this, those intro courses sometimes feel like they're going over things that, you know, yeah, yeah, I know that. Um, but on the other hand, they very often change a person's entire future. That's true. In just a few months. That's true. And I hope that's the case for many of the UBC students uh, starting uh, today, right? They, right. UBC is very busy right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first day where all the students are back in class. Yeah. You mentioned that your professor was very inspiring. Um, who else has been inspiring while you're going through your academic career? I know that a PhD and even a master's are not cakewalks, um, and it takes a village to raise a PhD <laughs> candidate. Um, who's been in your village? Those are the same people that I often... Uh, put on my acknowledgments, <laughs> of course. So previous supervisors that I had in Brazil from their, uh, the way they behave as a professor or the way they behave as a supervisor, and even the knowledge, like you talk to the person and you and you know that that person knows a lot, right? That's that's That was uh, super inspiring to me. And, and here in, in, in uh, 
at UBC, I, I found the same thing with the professors that I'm being that I'm working on. Um, but there are also students, you know. There are some students, and, and that's that's a, something I want to touch, which is pretty much a shame um, that we get to this point, which students that are brilliant, you know, they are fantastic, they do an amazing job. But if you come to them and say, "Oh, you're doing such like such an amazing thing," and they say, "Really? Am I?" They don't they don't trust themselves, right? I, I I'm blamed for that too. I, I do that mm. uh, quite often. My wife is like that. She's a great inspiration for me. Like, in terms of um, when everybody comes and say, "Oh, you are amazing. You have this and that scholarship. You are, uh, you you made this and this. Uh, you, you wrote this in this paper and whatever." I'd say you have to meet my wife. She's three, four, five times better than me, <laughs> you know. And it's it's just a uh, just amazing to we, we shared uh, our papers and we uh, grow up together with the academic aspect of things. Again, lab partners, uh, colleagues from my research lab, they do amazing uh, work, and it sometimes is a work and it's not even related to what I do, um, but it's just incredible to see what they can achieve. In just a couple of months, that's uh, inspire always inspires me to like do more, right? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's one of the best things about the university is that you've got so many amazing people all together that they uh, really benefit each other, and um, yeah, you get this amazing cross pollination <laughs> of ideas and inspiration. You are at the beginning of your career, and hopefully, you have a long career ahead of you. Um, You've touched on this earlier, but what would you like to have as your professional legacy by the time you eventually retire? So by the time I eventually retire, first, like I said before, I want to leave this, not leave, I, I would say leave the professional world, I guess, better than I, I joined it, and spe- especially the amount that I could contribute to science, um, uh, in particular air quality, air pollution, and making that available to the public in a way that is easy to understand, right? I think if I if I can achieve that and that be my legacy, it would be fantastic. Now, that's uh, a goal or something that I know I can accomplish uh, with the amount of time that I have. If I would go all the way and be super ambitious, my legacy would be to either solve or to get really close to solve climate change. I, I. I must emphasize that in terms of what the world is going to be in 2050, so 2050, just just to make it like right, um, I am not happy about it. I I don't think what, uh, good thoughts or, or have a good prospects, I would say, but that's because the way I see things heading right now, um, and it's. It's getting harder and harder to say that is hope and, and, and that is something that we can do. But let's not put ourselves down. There is hope. And I will be one of the persons together with many around the world that I know uh, that is going to be tackling climate change and try to solve this, this problem in our lifetime. One source that I draw hope and optimism from is that I know that there are people, very passionate and very skilled people around the world who are working on this problem. And um, they're smarter than I could ever imagine. And I hope that uh, they 
they understand the problem better than I do, and they haven't given up yet, so neither should we. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. We should look at that and be also inspired to do our part. My final question is a little more abstract. Um, I find that the world is changing in many ways and at lightning speed, not just in terms of its climate, but also in the way that we interact with it and we process it. Uh, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can mm-hmm. be completely different by the time that they retire. So where do you see the work that you're doing going? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of the changes that are coming down the road um, and so they can get ahead of the curve? I think the second part of your question is the most important one to touch bases. Um, I was actually watching a TED talk yesterday about how school uh, might kill or probably kills creativity. And the person that was giving that talk was amazing in the way that I passed on the message. And I, I actually pretty much believe uh, that message now in terms of a lot of our school system and uh, even all the way up to um, graduate research is done in a way that we, uh, that is no much, not much room for creativity, right? And I think that's something that unfortunately might be carrying on all the way up to the university and, and, and graduate life. If the person is trained to just study or replicate something, uh, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not pushing creativity, it's not pushing the change that we so need to see um, in the world, right? So I think for someone uh, that is either beginning or someone that's gonna retire 100, 100 years now, but like 60 years from now, uh, my message is don't be afraid of be creative and don't be afraid to um, the change or don't be afraid to pursue something new, start something new, uh, start your own company, why not, right? Um, search that thing that nobody's searching. Why not? You know, be be bold, and uh, perhaps you're gonna find something that, in other ways, if you follow the regular path, you would not find it. I think that's great advice, uh, no matter what field a person's going into, and advice you've certainly heeded. Um, I'd never imagined I'd get to meet uh, an urban. Uh, scent specialist <laughs> like yourself and I'm really excited about the idea of a, a, an aromatic map of Vancouver I think that's really cool and a really interesting approach to environmental science thank you very much the smellscape is coming <laughs> <laughs> Davi those are all the questions I have for you for today is there anything you want to add or anything I missed before I let you go I think the questions cover uh, pretty much all I had to I, I wanted to say and I just want to like to thank you for giving me the space to talk in the program, yeah, on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. 
and see you next week here on Earth. Thank you.